listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Hello, everybody. I am Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. I am talking to you from Regina, Saskatchewan. As always, where the front runner in the conservative leadership race was spending his evening last night mocking the candidates who were actually taking part in the conservative leadership debate. We are going to get to that in a bit. But first, Defense Minister Anita Annan just made an announcement on new support for Ukraine. The move comes nearly six months after Canada suspended its previous training mission in Ukraine just weeks before Russian forces invaded the country in February. Since then, Canada has been supplying lethal and non-lethal military equipment to the armed forces of Ukraine, as well as training on the use of of artillery and munitions. We have now entered a new and very dangerous phase of this conflict, with Putin engaging in protracted attempts to inflict long-term damage on Ukraine and its people. She says Canada is committed to supporting Ukraine's short, medium, and long-term defense needs. With this, Anand delivered this announcement. We are fulfilling our promise to resume large-scale training under Operation Unifier. I have authorized the deployment of up to 225 Canadian Armed Forces personnel to the United Kingdom, where they will train new Ukrainian military recruits. The majority of the deployed Canadian Armed Forces members will work as trainers supported by a command and control element at a military base in southeast England. The first cohort of CAF personnel will depart from Edmonton, Alberta, starting next week. Annan provided an update on military aid to Ukraine. We will continue to provide Ukraine not only with the skills to defend their country, but also with the equipment necessary to do so. Through our own stocks and inventory, we have provided anti-tank weapon systems and ammunition, hand grenades, M777s, artillery guns, and small arms to Ukraine over the last number of months. Defence Minister Anand also notes Canada was working to finalize an agreement to supply 39 armoured combat support vehicles. And today, I am pleased to confirm that an agreement has been achieved with the company and that these vehicles will be delivered straight off the assembly line to address some of Ukraine's most pressing battlefield needs. Annan says the deliveries to Europe of the the first vehicles will begin in the coming weeks. The vehicles will be equipped with additional armor and machine guns, as well as ammunition, and it adds that the Canadian Armed Forces have helped NATO allies deliver more than 3 million pounds of military aid and military equipment from our allies since February. In short, Canada is taking an all-hands-on-deck approach in our support for Ukraine and in defense of the rules-based international order. Our support will not waver. Annan was asked by a reporter following her her statement about the the state of the armed forces in terms of their ability to provide such a large commitment. Training missions like this, assisting our allies and our partners when they are under attack is what we do. It is one of the main purposes of the Canadian Armed Forces. 
And it says it supports our collective support security, our multilateral alliances, and the rules-based international order. Is fundamentally important to the Canadian Armed Forces and to our collective security. And it is a priority for us as a country to stand shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine and with our allies. And it was also asked about how Ukraine's ambassador to Canada is expected to express today disappointment about Canada's decision to waive the sanctions on the turbines that are being sent back to Germany. We will continue to impose severe costs on the Russian regime in response to Putin's illegal and unprovoked war against Ukraine. At the same time, it is important for us to support our European friends and allies as they work to end their dependency on Russian gas imports as quickly as possible. And it says Canada is going to continue to work to stabilize energy markets and to develop long-term and sustainable solutions on energy supplies. And it was also asked how many Ukrainian soldiers will be trained. She point out, pointed out that Canada has already been training Ukrainian soldiers for quite some time. Canada has trained since 2015 over 33,000 members of the Ukrainian armed forces. So our resumption of large-scale training under Operation Unifier is an extension of a long-term commitment that we've already made to training of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. And it says this is a sign of Canada's enduring commitment to our allies, as well as to the longevity of Ukraine itself. She went on to say that Canada is focused on assisting Ukraine in its time of need. And that is why our military aid over the last number of months since February 24th, and indeed before, has been so extensive. We need to stand with Ukraine in the short and the long term in order to assist in protecting its sovereignty and its stability. We're going to be breaking down uh, Defense Minister Annan's comments with retired Major General David Frazier coming up after the break. And after that, I want to hear from you on this. I feel like we haven't had many of these conversations lately, but, you know, I was I was doing a lot of filling in on uh, another radio show on this station uh, a few months ago, well, about five months ago, just after the Russian Ukraine or the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And we were having a lot of conversations about, you know, what should Canada's role be? Are we doing enough? Should we be doing more? Well, I want to revive that conversation today in light of this announcement today. Are you happy that that the Canadian Armed Forces will be sending our personnel over to not to Ukraine, but to a third country? They're going to be in England. Um training Ukrainian soldiers in the coming weeks and the coming months. Are you happy that we are resuming this commitment to Ukraine? Do you think it's enough? Do you think that we should be doing more? Uh, do you do you believe that that we should be sending more military aid, more lethal weapons or non non lethal support? Uh, so again, we're going to be speaking with retired General David Frazier coming up after the break. And then I will, of course, want to hear from you. You can give us a call. Send us a text message. I already see uh, text messages streaming in at 71010. So please do keep that 
that coming. We've got a lot of stuff coming up on the show today. One thing uh, that we won't be diving into, but that I did want to point out, however, is that uh, the uh, WNBA player, Brittany Griner, who has been held in, in Russia, uh, has been found officially been found guilty this morning in a, by a Russian court. Uh, this, of course, is not something that comes as a surprise. She had earlier entered a guilty plea, admitting that she was carrying cannabis vaping products in her luggage, uh, but of course, with no intent to traffic them or to sell them. Uh, the end result was inevitable in terms of her guilty finding, but we are waiting now to hear what sentence she will receive. Uh, Griner, of course, has been caught in the middle of the crisis between Washington and Moscow over Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, many countries, Canada included, watching this case very closely. This is this is very reminiscent for us uh, of the two Michaels and, and what we were dealing with with China, not, not too far in our distant past. Um, so again, Brittany Griner found guilty officially by a Russian court. Prosecutors there are seeking a sentence of up to 10 years, but with this will all really uh, likely come down to political negotiations be behind the scenes. Brittany Griner, of course, being a political pawn, no matter what happens in the court, that is ultimately a show trial, and we'll have to see uh, what happens with the conversations behind the scenes after that. In addition, we are going to be breaking down some of the big political stories of the day. We are going to be talking about what is going on in our healthcare system. We've been hearing a lot about emergency rooms shutting down, uh, hospitals being overwhelmed. Well, now seven in 10 Ontario nurses say that they can not provide adequate patient care. This is in contrary to what Premier Doug Ford said just yesterday on the matter. We're going to be breaking that down in the in the segments to come. Keep on tuning in. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. If you miss any part of the show, you can always tune in to the Evan Solomon Show podcast. Stay tuned for retired Major General David Frazier after the break. you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. And I am Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon this week. I will be back in this chair next week. Also, I mentioned before the break, Brittany Garner was Brittany Griner, rather the WNBA player that has been who has been held uh, in a Russian jail cell for the last several weeks, uh, last months, I sh should say, uh, that she was officially found guilty today. We are waiting on the sentence uh, handed to her for uh, for being found with the vaping uh, products in her bag as she entered Russia. Uh, I'm now reading that she has been sentenced to nine years in prison. But as I mentioned before the break, uh, Brittany Griner is, of course, being used as a political pawn. So we are going to have to see what comes of the conversations that are happening behind the scenes. The United States has offered up uh, one of their prisoners known as the merchant of death, a, go a global arms dealer in exchange for Griner and another U.S. prisoner being held in Russia. So far, Russia does not seem to be taking that bait, but we shall see. Well, happening in Canada today and in Ukraine and in the United Kingdom, uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand has just made an announcement on new support for Ukraine. We are fulfilling our promise to resume large-scale training under Operation Unifier. I have authorized the deployment of up to 225 Canadian Armed Forces personnel to the United Kingdom, where they will train new Ukrainian military recruits. 
The majority of the deployed Canadian armed forces will work as trainers supported by a command and control element at a military base in Southeast England. The first cohort of CAF personnel will depart from Edmonton, Alberta next week. Anand also notes that Canada is working to finalize an agreement to supply 39 armored combat support vehicles. And today, I am pleased to confirm that an agreement has been achieved with the company and that these vehicles will be delivered straight off the assembly line to address some of Ukraine's most pressing battlefield needs. Defence Minister Anand says the deliveries to Europe of the first vehicles will be beginning in the coming weeks. She was asked by a reporter today about the state of the armed forces in terms of its ability to provide such a large commitment. Training missions like this, assisting our allies and our partners when they are under attack is what we do. It is one of the main purposes of the Canadian Armed Forces. And it says it supports our collective support security, our multilateral alliances, and the rules-based international order. It's fundamentally important to the Canadian Armed Forces and to our collective security. And it is a priority for us as a country to stand shoulder to shoulder with Ukraine and with our allies. I want to hear from you on this. Give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. You may may have to give us some patience uh, and uh, uh, wait until the next segment, but do start giving us your calls, 1-855-633-1010, or text us, 71010. Is Canada doing enough? Are we doing too much? I want to hear from you. But first, let's go to our first guest of the show, retired Major General David Fraser is on the line. Uh, retired Major General, I know it's probably a very busy day for you, so let's just jump right into this. What was your what were your key takeaways from uh, Minister Annan's remarks this morning? Well, Tamara, it's good to be with you, and I think Canadians should be proud that we are now uh, helping brand new Ukrainian recruits uh, fight uh, the Russian invaders. And uh, the, the men and women coming out of the 3rd Battalion, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, are more than capable and some of the best trained and best equipped troops in the world to train and share their experiences and knowledge with the Ukrainians and allow those Ukrainians to fight the Russians and not have to pull people off the line to train, which would weaken their front line. So this is something significant that Canada has announced today, and we should all be uh, happy about it. I mean, this is certainly more training than many of the soldiers who have been fighting on the front lines in Ukraine uh, have received. But uh, it's it's still not as much as as a soldier would usually receive. Is is this enough or how 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 much better equipped will these soldiers be on the front lines than than they have been over the last five months? Uh, First and foremost, I mean, you can you can train to the cows come in, uh, but you know, that's against, you know, when there is no threat. But right now, Ukraine is invaded. It has been invaded and is being attacked by Russia. Therefore, this is an all-hands-on-deck operation, and the training that they will get from these Canadian soldiers will be the best in the world. Uh, It will be very focused. They're not going to learn about drill or all that, you know, frivolous stuff. Uh, What they're going to learn is how to use their weapons safely, how to use them effectively, how to work together as a team, how to communicate on a battlefield and actually fight 
uh, the type of war that uh, Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainians have been fighting for some time. The equipment that we are giving them is the best in the world. GDLS London is the best producer of armored vehicles, and uh, the, the vehicles that they're going to get is a match to any Russian vehicle out there. And what we are doing is enabling and setting up the Ukrainians for success, which is to, to defeat the Russians. Okay, well, let's talk about that, because Ukraine has been devastated over the past five and a half months. Many soldiers have on the battlefield with little to no experience, as we said. Why now? Why do you think we're hearing this announcement now? Why not earlier? Why not later? Is there significance to the to to the timing of this? This is all this all goes down to politics. I mean, we have to ask the minister that one. I mean, could have could we mean training uh, Ukrainians from from the day one? Of course, we could have. I mean. Uh, the fact that we're doing it now, I'm just happy that Canada has actually stepped up, put the men and women uh, uh, over there into the UK to start training Ukrainians so they can fight and defend their country and push out the aggressor. But, you know, I'll let other people at the debate, you know, could we have done it sooner? Uh, the fact that we are doing it now is great. If Ukrainians ask for more, Canada is not at war. Uh, therefore, we should be using our men and women who are more than capable of teaching others who are at war how to fight a war and give them the resources that they need, like what's coming off of GDLS, and, and refill our our bins afterwards. Uh, but let's let's help out a friend who's in need now. Can you just describe for me, I, I imagine that, that this morning was not the first time that you heard that this would be coming. I know that at least news started uh, leaking out last night, but... What what sort of personal response did you have to this? Because as as a retired major general, um, I can't imagine it's been easy seeing what is going on in Ukraine and knowing the level of training or the lack of training, rather, that many of these soldiers uh, are fighting with. I, I mean, I spent most of my career preparing to fight a war against the Warsaw Pact. Never, you know, never never thinking I'd ever see it for real. But we are actually seeing it. Russia has invaded Ukraine. Uh, and they have put their entire combat force against Ukraine in what has been a battle of attrition. And this is going to be a war of resupply. Whoever can resupply uh, that battle and be still standing at the end will win. And this is what Canada can do to support uh, you know, the aggression of Russia. Because if we don't stop them there, they will keep on going west into Poland and into the other NATO nations. And we don't want that. Uh, Putin has got to be taught a lesson here that his desires and his aggression are not acceptable. We don't want a direct war with them, but we can certainly support Ukraine in their fight against Russia, which in turn will keep the rest of Europe safer. And so I'm sitting here going, you know, as a as a former military uh, member, I'm, I'm all about supporting a country in need. If they want men and women to train, uh, we should provide it. If they want equipment, we should give it to them. If they want money, we'll give it to them because, by extension, it's going to make sure that we remain safe. All right. Retired Major General David Fraser, thanks so much for taking the time in what, again, I'm sure is a very uh, busy day for you. Uh, lots of valuable insights in there. Uh, I, wa- I want to turn it over now to uh, you, to the listener. 
What do you think of this? What do you think of the announcement today? Is it uh, is it too late? Are you happy about it? As retired Major General Fraser said, or are you just happy that that it's it's finally here? Do you think Canada is doing too much? As as one person on the text board suggested, I asked, give us a call one eight five five six three three ten ten. I know that there's are there are already some callers waiting on the line. I appreciate your patience. Hang on until after the break. We will get to you right away. Again, one eight five five six three three ten ten. And as always, you can keep those text messages coming in at 71010. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon on The Evan Solomon Show. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is The Evan Solomon Show. And I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. The newsmaker today is Defense Minister Anita Anand. And with her announcement uh, just uh, in the last hour or two, the Canada will be sending military trainers to the United Kingdom to help teach Ukrainian soldiers how to fight invading Russian forces. Defense Minister Anand announced the plan uh, saying that up to 225 Canadian Armed Forces will eventually be based in Britain for an initial period of four months. They'll begin rolling out of Edmonton next week, and they will be working alongside counterparts from Britain, the Netherlands, and New Zealand in training Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, Of course, the move comes nearly six months after Canada suspended its previous training mission in Ukraine, and just weeks before Russian forces invaded the country in February. So I we just before the break, we heard from retired uh, Major General David Fraser. Uh, he was he's happy that Canada has has come to this point. Um, and now I want to hear from you. one 1010 Send me a text message at 71010. Are you happy with this announcement today? Is it enough? Is it too much? Is it too late? What what are you thinking today? We haven't been having a lot of conversations lately about. Canada's role in Ukraine. Well, this has just thrown it right back into the headlines. Of course, a lot of Ukrainian soldiers have died on the front lines. Uh, Much of that likely has to do with the fact that, I mean, a lot of them don't have the training that is necessary for this this sort of uh, the sort of artillery that they have faced from Russia. The Ukrainian government reported in June that 10,000 of its soldiers had been killed since Russian forces invaded with thousands more wounded and missing. And, and officials have also said that between 100 and 200 Ukrainian troops are being killed every day and hundreds more wounded. So let's go to the phone lines. Dwight, you are calling from Etobicoke in Toronto. What was your reaction to Defense Minister Annan's comments today? Well, I'm sorry for any loss of life, civilian or military, on either side of this equation. But uh, Major uh, Fraser's remarks are kind of reminded me of when U.S. politicians and, and military people used to say, if we don't stop the Viet Cong, they'll be in Hawaii, and then they'll be in California before we know it. I don't see that happening, and it didn't happen, even though the U.S. withdrew from Vietnam. So we've heard this kind of story before about uh, encroachment on bordering countries. And furthermore, I think we need to do some diligence to the fact that U.S. Undersecretary of State Victoria Newland admitted that there were over 20 bioweapons labs functioning in Ukraine. They were also sponsored, funded, and operated by the U.S. Department of Defense. The Ukraine's been used as a brothel, and 
what Putin has done is put an end to certain threats, not just to Russia, but to the rest of the world. And I think, uh, you know, we all watched America march into Iraq to look for weapons that didn't exist. Nobody in your media is talking about chemical weapons and laboratories that do exist and have been acknowledged to have existed. Okay, so I should point out that that what you're saying about the bioweapons labs in Ukraine, that is information that is disputed. Uh, the, the conversation that we're having today is about whether or not uh, we're happy with, with the training. Oh, and Dwight, 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 just because we're running out of time, I got to go back to the phone lines. Mark in Dundas, uh, and thank you, Dwight, for your call. Mark in Dundas, what has your uh, reaction been to Defence Minister Annan's uh, announcement today about Canadian Armed Forces heading over to the United Kingdom to train Ukrainian soldiers? We, Canada has absolutely no business in this war whatsoever. And to uh, the media, when you talk about the media, look at all the misinformation that has gone down. And if you watch media reports from around the world, you'll get a very different story of, of what is happening in the Ukraine, what is happening to the weapons that are being sent there, and, and all kinds of things like that. Why are these weapons on the open market? Why can Russia buy these weapons and then use them? Well, this is, this is a question the, that was, this is a question of, that was put to... This is a question that was put to Defence Minister Annan today, and she said that they are constantly keeping an eye on on that sort of thing. But are are you so? What first? Why do you think Canada should not be a part of this? Or do you think we shouldn't be supporting a, a democratic country when they're being uh, invaded by by Russia? Well, you call it a democratic country, but take a look at what happened there pre-2014. And why was Christia Freeland photographed holding a banner about the... All right, I think we're getting into the conspiracy theory territory, Mark. I thank you for your call. We're going to go on to Leslie in Oshawa, east of Toronto. Toronto. Leslie, what was your uh, response to Minister Annan's comments today? We took care of our neighbours. Have you been have you, waiting for this, Leslie? Yes, were, I Were you have. frustrated before? Yes, I've been very frustrated by, by um, our Prime Minister's response to many, many things, but to Ukraine, most of all, they're our friends, they are allies. Russia is not our friend, he's not our ally, and we should support our allies. I understand how NATO feels, I understand all those things, but the bottom line is, is we should support each other, and that's important to me, and it's about time. What, do you think that this is enough then, uh, Leslie, or do you think we should be doing more, or are you just happy with, with the announcement today? I think we should be doing more, but I'm happy that finally the Government of Canada is doing something. But up until now, um, we have fighter pilots. We could send them. I don't see why we don't. They could use all the help they could get, and they're not getting it. And um, it, to me, it's wrong. We support our friends. We support our neighbours. All right, Leslie uh, calling from Ottawa, Oshawa, Ottawa, sorry, Ottawa, Oshawa. Oshawa, thanks so much for your call, Leslie, and your thank thoughts. You for, uh, thank you for taking my call and letting me say my what I had to say. I appreciate that. Uh, oh, of course. I, I'm, I'm grateful that you were able to uh, join us today. Mark, you're calling from Hamilton. Uh, you don't agree, by the sounds of it, with the, the announcement today. No, I don't agree with it at all. Like your other caller, a few callers ago said, um, you know, I'm not a fan of Putin. I think Putin has done some really bad things in his uh, presidency in, in Russia, but at the same time, um, 
Ukraine isn't, uh, you know, they're, they're not as uh, innocent as we all think. It, it's, it has been a brothel. It has been um, a breeding ground for many, many years. And uh, for us to just go in there and just be supporting them and, you know, maybe Putin is doing something to stop a bigger threat to the world that maybe we don't know about. I think, yeah, you know what, you, you, you seem to blow it, up it, 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 listen, very, uh, very I, quickly. I, but, I, I think uh, I think it's. You know, but I should point out, though, I think it's it. been settled quite broadly. It. Okay, just Mark, please. It's been settled quite broadly because we have people texting in about this, calling in on this. Um, that this is Russian disinformation. The whole bioweapons thing in Ukraine. What we're talking about today: sending sending soldiers from Canada over to train Ukrainian soldiers against this uh, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Of course, we're getting propaganda on all sides. That's going to happen in any war. But among that propaganda is is Russian disinformation about about some of the stuff that's going on in Ukraine. I don't even feel com- comfortable repeating it or or taking calls on that, quite frankly. Uh, 1-855-633-1010. Lots of text messages coming in as well. Um, some people saying, you know, we, we should be keeping our soldiers here in Canada, uh, defending Canadians and Canada. I think that the counter argument would be that we are defending Canadians by defending our, our allies in Ukraine in another democratic country. Uh, somebody else saying, how about training doctors and nurses for the Canadians who are footing the bill? Why are we always so uh, magnanimous abroad when things are desperately needed on the home front? That is going to be something that we will be talking about a little bit later in the show. Another issue, certainly an uh, an important one. Other people asking, why has the Canadian Armed Forces waited so long to send help? It's been since April watching the CAF direction to leave Ukraine to watching volunteer veterans over there for free training the U for reach for free training from the UK recruits. Well, you know, I put that question to retired Major General David Fraser in the last segment. And uh I think that we can all agree that the timing of this likely comes down to politics. But people like retired uh retired Major General David Fraser, uh, as well as our our previous caller, Leslie in Oshawa, have been sitting back frustrated by the lack of of action. So uh, some people happy, some people not. Thanks for all your calls and texts. We'll have a lot more coming up uh, in politics news after the break. I'm Tamara Cherry and for Evan today. Sorting through the changes, here's Evan Solomon. Here's Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. You know, I love when people text into the show, call into the show, calling the media the virus. You are the virus. You are the enemy. Well, thanks for listening to the virus. When I'm trying to avoid a virus, as you might be able to hear in my voice, I have one right now, but I do what I can to avoid them. If I think that the media is the virus, I will not be tuning into the media. And yet people continue to listen to the show, even though they believe that we are the virus. So thank you for all of your texts today. Appreciate it. As always, there's lots going on in the world of politics. Uh, Just last night, third Conservative Party of Canada leadership debate, three of the five people running to be the next leader of the CPC squared off in a debate last night in Ottawa. Jean Charest, Roman Baber, and Scott Aitchison took part in a bilingual roundtable event, but Leslie Lewis and front runner Pierre Poiliev did not show up. Charest did not hold back his thoughts on their absence. Roman Baber, Scott Aitchison, 
and I all agree on one thing. If we are going to unite the party, you have to show up. You actually have to show up. You have to speak to the membership. Pierre Poiliev, meanwhile, was here in Saskatchewan. He posted this video on his Twitter. Well, I can tell you there's no place I'd rather be right now. Uh, I'm told that I could have, instead of being here with all of you in Saskatchewan, I could have been cooped up in a little hotel room around a small table listening to a defeated liberal premier drone on about his latest carbon tax idea. I'd rather be out here talking to real people. Okay. There were a few attacks between the three who did partake in the leadership debate, although Ageson repeatedly asked Sheree if he would stay committed to the party if he does not win the race. Sheree had this to say. We're like boxers at the end of our match. I mean, we're in the 12th round and you, you know, we're interrupted to say, well, what will you do if you don't? The fact of the matter is I'm focused on one single objective that I am going to meet, and that's becoming leader of the party and then prime minister of Canada, period. Sheree stressed that his experience as a political leader is what the party needs to unite. I have a track record of uniting. And this party, if there's one thing this party has to sort out, more than anything else, because we paid a high price for it in 19 and 21, a very high price, and now the country's paying a high price for it, is getting our country, our party organized and united. I will do that. I know how to do it. It's what I've done all my life. All right, joining us now to break down this political, the political climate that we find ourselves in today is Melanie Paradis, conservative strategist and former senior staffer to Aaron O'Toole. Melanie, thanks for taking the time. I know it must be a busy day for you. Thanks so much for having me on. And what a dismal clip package that was. Oh, I know, right? I was I was equal parts smiling, rolling my eyes sometimes. Okay, so what do you what do you think, Melanie? Does this leadership debate that happened last night, does it even matter? when Pierre Poiliev, the front runner, was in another province altogether, mocking the fact that, that other candidates chose to partake and he chose not to. Was this an important debate? Yeah, I mean, he, Pierre Poiliev was was hosting his own stand-up comedy tour of, of Saskatchewan <laughs> while doing uh, Get Out the Vote to uh, get people to come in and, and drop their ballots off to vote for him. Which is, you know, it's a it's a smart strategy to be out there in the field collecting those ballots. That is the biggest challenge right now. At, at the end of the debate tonight, or uh, last night, Rob Batherson noted that 150,000 ballots have been received at headquarters, which is about 20% of, of the ballots in total. And in past leaderships, we've had about 65% voter turnout. So we're still waiting on like hundreds of thousands of, of more votes to come in. So I think that this debate last night, there it could have still moved the needle. Um, obviously, there's there's still 80 percent of the ballots out there that are that are not accounted for yet. So people are still voting. They're still thinking about how they're going to rank their ballots. And at the end of the day, it's it's actually hard to get people to fill out those ballots, photocopy their driver's license, put it in the mail. Um, you really have to motivate them to do that. So. Leslie Lewis being in Prince Edward Island, Pierre Polyev being in Saskatchewan, out there with, with members directly. Um, that's certainly a, a smart strategy on their part. But at the same time, a candidate like Jean Charest needs down-ballot support. He needs to appeal to uh, members who are thinking about voting for another candidate first. And his participation in the debate was, was very strategic for that reason. Do you, do you think that uh, Jean Charest 
actually thinks that he has a shot of becoming the next leader of the Canadian uh, of, of the Conservative Party of Canada, or do you think his moves right now are about moving the needle of of Polyev's platform? I mean, we have sort of a lack of a platform right now from him, but but should he become the next leader and sort of changing the conversation of where he goes? Or you know, we've also heard about Trey potentially uh, creating another party. Uh, what what do you think the the strategy is there? Well, so there's a couple things to unpack there. First, I'd say I, I don't think that Pierre Polyev does have a platform at all. The only policies mm-hmm. that he's really or commitments that he's made um, that that people can hold him to account for are expanding the runway at the Toronto Island Airport and uh, uh, firing Tiff Macklem, perhaps to retrain him to be a nurse, since that's what we this country needs more <laughs> of desperately. Um, I, I, I'm not quite sure where he would like pivot to a lot of pundits, a lot of people in media were talking about whether he's going to pivot after this. He has -hmm. not been pegged yet. He's really given himself carte blanche. He's got a wide open field to kind of do whatever he wants policy wise because he hasn't gone to debates and he hasn't done media interviews to, you know, really nail down where he stands on certain issues. So I think that's going to be very interesting. If he becomes leader of the party, he's going to have a very, very broad mandate. As for Jean Charest and whether he thinks he can actually win, I, I, having worked on a, on a bunch of leaderships and just campaigns generally, I can tell you that every candidate, no matter how bad it is, believes that they can win <laughs> or they wouldn't mm-hmm. do this. So I think he knows that his his path to victory is very narrow, but it still exists. And so he's laser focused on on continuing down that path, even though it's he at this point, he needs like every miracle to swing his way. I'm going to give you a question that uh, we just got from the text board, somebody in Oakville, west of Toronto. Let's just assume that Poliev gets the Tory nod. Is he electable as a right wing Trumpian populist? That's a quote from the text board. (laughs) Okay, so without without taking the bait on that, um, I'll say generally that I think that there's there's two schools of thought here. Both like if you look big picture at where the economy is going in Canada and where um, attitudes are shifting to amongst the electorate, if you believe that the economy is going to get worse and that people are going to get angrier and that they're going to have less hope, then a candidate like Pierre Polyev is highly electable because he represents change. And, mm. and so in, in that set of circumstances, I think he absolutely is electable. Uh, the question is, is that actually where we're going or are things going to start getting better sooner? And then the other big question is, ultimately, the Liberals decide when we go to the polls next, right? Like, and they're not going to pick the time that's best for us, for the Conservatives. They're going to pick the time that's best for them when they're up in the polls and when things are going well. So I'm, to be honest, to answer that question, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's safe to say all around that if Pierre Poiliev does uh, become the next leader and he does continue, uh, you know, with the the investment in the anger of Canadians, then we'll have a lot more dismal clips to come. Melanie Parody, uh, thanks so much for taking the time today. Melanie is, of course, a conservative strategist and former senior staffer to Aaron O'Toole. Coming up after the break, I want to hear from you. Uh, do you want the right to ha- be forgotten On the internet, uh, a poll has just been released. Over a third of Canadians saying they want to delete themselves from the internet. Give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. Send us a text message at 71010. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon on The Evan Solomon Show.
You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. I'm Claire Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon this week and next. We're exploring the right to be forgotten, perhaps not the right, but maybe the desire to be forgotten on the internet. I want to hear from you on this. one 855 633-1010. Send me a text message at 71010. Is wiping the slate totally clean even possible in our digital dominant world? If you could delete any part of yourself from the internet, what would it be? We're talking about this because this new survey has found that more than a third of Canadians want to, quote, delete themselves from the internet. A third of Canadians saying that they would completely wipe out their presence on the internet if they could. The survey was commissioned by cybersecurity and VPN provider NordVPN. It involved nearly 11,000 participants from 11 countries, including 1,000 right here in Canada. And it found that 36% of Canadians would delete themselves from the internet if they could. Additionally, 48% of Canadians felt used by companies collecting their data, while 47% expressed worries that someone may eventually hack into their devices. I got to say, I'm surprised actually that that first number is so low that that it would only be uh, a little less than half of Canadians feeling that they're being used by companies collecting their data. Because as they say, if you're not paying for it, they're getting something from you, (laughs) namely social media platforms, things like Google. It seems that we are being tracked in everything that we do on the internet uh, right now. Give me a call with your thoughts on this, 1-855-633-1010, or send me a text message at 71010. I was telling our producer, Samantha, earlier this morning that just yesterday, I was trying to read a news story online and as always, as often happens, I, I clicked into the story and the news outlet said, to continue reading this story, please register an account. And I subscribe to a lot of news outlets. I pay a subscription fee every month. Uh, I do think it's something that we, sh- we should be paying for, but I don't subscribe to them all. So I said, okay, fine. I will. I reluctantly signed up for an account. I gave them my email address. I created a password. And when all of that was done, I still did not have access to the news story. So I immediately tried to see if I could delete the account and it was not easy to do. I got distracted by something else, didn't end up deleting it. But now this company has my email address. Uh, they, They know potentially the sorts of topics that I'm interested in considering the news story that I was trying to click into and they can be selling this to advertisers. So how many times have you Uh, been talking to somebody or been texting with somebody or emailing somebody about, you know, perhaps going on a vacation to a particular place. uh, And then, you know, moments later or later that day, you get an email from a travel company about, um, you know, promotion to that very place that you happen to, to mention. I've heard a lot of stories like that. I've experienced a lot of stories. I don't like it. Give me a call. 1-855-633-1010. Text messages coming in at 71010. You know, somebody pointing out that uh, we'll only be able to delete current or marginal data. Google collects from all websites visited, and most browsers are based on Google, even many private b- browsers like Opera. I hadn't even heard of Opera, so thanks for that. B- Brave is a better choice. None of them are for sure secure from Google. Thanks for that, Jack. I hadn't heard of Opera or Brave. I will definitely be looking into those. Uh, somebody else saying on the text word, we could absolutely delete ourselves from the internet. It would be painstaking and take forever. It would be nearly impossible to figure out every website. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that maybe you meant to say we could never absolutely delete ourselves. I, You know what? I often will say to, to my sister and friends, I am grateful that 
we sort of came of age before the time of social media. I was, I was already, you know, silly enough to take pictures at parties that we would host at my parents' house when they were out of town. Sorry, mom. And then I would print those pictures out and I would put them in a photo album that I would keep in my room for my mother to find. And yeah, I'd get in trouble. So I can't imagine if social media was around at that time. Somebody else say, yeah, truth. If you are not paying for a product, you are the product. Absolutely. Somebody else texting in, I'm 27 years old and I've been wiped and deleted off all social media for four years. And it's so liberating. It feels amazing to not be part of the norm, addicted to social media as they are. I, You know what? I can't agree uh, more with you. Uh, my husband and I deleted our Facebook accounts how many years ago now? Probably three years ago. We both hit delete at the same time. It was very liberating. I'm technically on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I recently created a TikTok thing, but it's all for professional purposes. I enjoy Twitter as a place to get my news. So I do, I, I guess you could say I use it for personal reasons. But other than that, I, uh, I, I don't like to share personal things on these platforms. I use it as a space to connect professionally with people, to share things about my company, uh, for, for research that I'm involved in. Uh, but other than that, I, 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 I've just never been one of those people that is comfortable sharing posts you know, posts about their kids. I shouldn't say never before I deleted Facebook, I had posted some things years ago, but, but never identifying features. I like to keep my, my private life very separate from my personal life. Maybe you've posted something that, that you've later regretted and, and it sort of disappeared out into the universe and you're afraid that you can never get it back. Give me a call. one 855 Meantime, lots of text messages continue to be streaming in on this topic. Of course, we're talking about this because a new survey says that more than a third of Canadians say they would completely wipe out their presence on the internet if they could. Kate, you're calling from Scarborough. What do you what do you think of this survey? Are you in agreement with the third of Canadians? Uh, my number one, yeah, I'm in my 60s, so thank God that <laughs> I don't have yeah. to worry about. You missed it all in, in your youth, when yes. I was younger, and uh, just as a case of violating your privacy. Also, as I, I was. I was talking to somebody, and they told me about camping. So we were having this conversation about camping. My phone was nearby, and I started getting pop-ups about camping equipment. It is freaky, right? Freaky. And so wrong. So, so have you taken any steps, Kate, to try to minimize that sort of stuff? Have you gone through, like, the security settings on your phone? I don't even know what you yeah. would need to turn off for that. But so, so did you find anything on your phone when you went looking I that might have led to that? It. Okay, yes, good. Good. And did he grab your phone and say, mom, you should never put on this or that. Like I, I turn off the location, the location settings because they, you know, we've heard news stories yeah. lately that, uh, you know, we we're talking about Tim Hortons has been in the news lately uh, because even if you would check the only track my location while I'm using the app, it was found that they were actually using data from your phone I when heard. you were not using the app. So yeah. I took all the off after that. Yes. Kate. Thank you. And and I'm happy for Thanks. you that, uh, that yeah, you didn't have all of your youth on social media as, uh, as I feel about my own youth. So thanks for your call. Michael, you're calling from Toronto also. What are your feelings on the internet and your personal life? Hey, Tamar, it's uh, nice to actually hear on the radio too, which was a bit more frequent, but here we are. But uh, as I was telling your screener there, I actually cut it off uh, for, I'd say, at least four or five months. Um, not too long ago, about a year or so ago, and it was actually very... Sorry, Michael, what did, you, what did you cut off? Social media, the internet altogether? Yeah, so I, I got rid of all social media, just like cut myself off from it for a while, 
And unfortunately, it was very liberating. Like you felt so peaceful, like you said, you put your mind to more important things. But I started realizing I was losing a lot of business, a lot of money that I potentially also made from it, and not to mention. I, you know, there was a lot of good things to eat that I was kind of missing out on too, you know? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, the biggest thing though was I was losing a lot of business and I've become a lot more conscientious about what I do. And plus, right. I got to say, the biggest highlight I got from bringing back social media was I reconnected with an ex-girlfriend, Larissa, and loved my life. I like Look at you! Everything I love tomorrow. it, Michael! Okay, that's great. Michael, I'm sorry, I got to go back to the phones because we just have time for one more call. Paul, you're calling from Peterborough, Ontario. What are you thinking? We just got a, like less than a minute, Paul. Okay, Google, play 1010. You know, Google is listening all the time. No matter what you say, if you've got that enabled on your phone, they're listening and they're advertising. You mentioned something a little while later, it's going to pop up in your news feed, your Facebook feed, whatever feed. Google is always listening. <laughs> well, you know what? I if You say Google, I say Alexa. We've got an Alexa in our home, and I will always have it on do not listen. But when it is on listen, one thing I often say also is play News Talk 1010 in Toronto, Alexa. So, Paul, thank you for calling from Peterborough. Thanks for all your calls and texts on this topic. Stay tuned. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon, and we've been talking a lot this week about the healthcare crisis in our country. It's a crisis that's been going on for decades, but it really seems to be reaching a boiling point. So we're going to be speaking with the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Lots happening uh, with nurses in Ontario and healthcare workers. We're going to dig into that coming up after the break again. I'm Tamara Cherry. Thanks for listening. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. And filling in for Evan Solomon this week is me, Tamara Cherry, uh, coming at you from Regina, Saskatchewan. Listen, we've been talking a lot this week about the healthcare crisis facing our country. This is not a new crisis. Uh, we've had a healthcare crisis for several years, several decades, many would argue, but it really seems to be reaching a boiling a point at late with a new survey saying that nearly half of all nurses surveyed in Ontario say they're considering leaving the job, 70% saying they can't provide adequate care to patients, 93% saying their workload increased over the last two to three years, and 60% saying their mental health has deteriorated, deteriorated as a result of the stress. And with this as the backdrop, Premier Ford addressed the province's healthcare system yesterday. He said that Ontario, uh, Ontarians continue to have access to services. Ontarians continue to have access to the care they need when they need it. In fact, 9 out of 10 high urgency patients are finishing their emergency visit within targeted times. And while surgeries are happening, he says, at nearly 95% of pre-pandemic rates, Ford says the welcome news does not change the fact that our hospitals are feeling the pressure now. That's why our government has added 3,100 new hospital beds, added over 10,500 more healthcare workers, including nurses, personal support workers. It's why we're working with the College of Nurses to add more internationally educated nurses into the system. 
Joining us now is Dr. Doris Grinspun. Uh, Dr. Grinspun is the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Uh, Dr. Grinspun, thanks for taking the time today. I can't help but think that perhaps you're going to have a, di a little bit of a different take than the Premier of Ontario today. Is that a fair assessment? It's a fair assessment, Tamara, and the Premier and I have spoken, and if I were to speak with him today, I would say nine out of ten what happens to the one that didn't. What, what do you, how do you square, I, how do you square patients, what happens to the one that didn't, because emergency rooms are right. closing, ICUs are either one close altogether and transfer aid patients, and then you have major hospitals like University Health Network that announced just yesterday, on the same day that the Premier spoke about three ICU units, including cardiac care ICU, that are reducing their services because they don't have more staff. And the Premier said, Tamara, that they have brought forward 10,500. First of all, people continue to leave. So the 10,500, maybe just as many as they left now, who knows? We don't have those figures. But the reality is most of them are PSWs. And while we support hugely PSWs, they go a lot for example, to nursing homes, in ICUs, in step-down units, in emergency rooms, is arranged the ones you need, and they are the ones that the entire global community, especially the U.S., is trying to lure over there because they are short also. So Dr. Grinspan, uh, again, we're speaking with Dr. Grinspan, who's the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. I should point out that a lot of the themes we're, we're seeing coming out of Ontario, they're present right across the country. We've been seeing ICUs, emergency rooms shutting down across the country for many of the same issues. But let's focus on, on Ontario for now. Premier Doug Ford is saying that Ontarians continue to have access to the care they need. But this new survey uh, says that I, I believe it was 95 percent. Was it 95 percent of nurses say that that they're not able to give the, the care that they need? Tell us what you what you see, the stories you see, the, the stories you hear um, from your members about what's actually happening in Ontario hospitals. Paint a picture Absolutely, for us. Absolutely, Tamara. And I do want to pick up on your comment because also Minister Jones has said that this is an international problem with nursing shortage and it's a national problem. You are correct. It is all over the country. But there is one thing that is different in Ontario, and it's that we have Bill 124. And when you have a bill of salary suppression at 1% and cost of living has gone up, you know, by almost 8%, so you have a decreasing compensation of 7%, Layer to it the loss of compensation last year. Nurses have lost in their compensation 8.3% in the last two and a half years, 8.3%, and in real terms of purchasing power, over 12%. So that no other province has that, and certainly the U.S. doesn't. So nurses are, first of all, exhausted. They are exhausted. There is a... There is a a huge rate, 75% of uh, burnout in nursing, and it's because we had a pandemic, no doubt. Mm -hmm. They gave up the vacations, the days off, 
They gave up family time. They were afraid at the beginning. Everybody was, also the public, as you may remember, because we didn't have vaccinations or, or even enough uh, PPE at the beginning. So they have given it all, and in return, what they have received, Bill 124 in Ontario. That's why they're leaving Ontario, Tamara. They are frustrated that their voice, including yesterday, when the Premier said he will not touch Bill 124, they are frustrated and they are going to Alberta, they are going to other jurisdictions in Canada, south of the border, they are going, and to agency here in Ontario, where they get a lot more compensation and a lot of more flexibility over their schedules. And hospitals, for example, end up, end up paying double the price or more. So we are not saving any money, and yet we are... We are letting nurses go to other jurisdictions or to agencies. It's insane. I just want to point out, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but just keeping in mind that this is a national program, I just want to point out for our listeners outside of Ontario or for those who are perhaps not familiar with Bill 124, this is this is essentially wage suppression legislation um, that, that nurses have been arguing uh it, it, well there's a there's a charter challenge against this bill um because nurses believe that the bill interferes with charter rights to fe- freely bargain this is a bill that limits wage increases to a maximum of, of 1% total compensation for 3 years but but we do know that there are there are problems in in staffing in other provinces and in other jurisdictions so do you do you think that that uh getting rid of this bill um or increasing wages would that would that really radically change the numbers in the survey that we're, we were just talking about at the beginning of this segment? Would would it bring up morale enough? Would it uh, make the job good enough that we, we don't need to worry about so many nurses leaving the profession as they're saying they want to do? There is no doubt that increasing compensation will, will solve part of the problem. The Ontario Nurses Association, ONA, will tell you that their ability to negotiate will improve the condition for nurses, and we support them fully. And no, that's not the only thing, but that's a flag. In Ontario, Bill 124 has become a flag because, in real terms, nurses have dropped their their compensation by 12.2% if you put the two and a half years and the purchasing power of it. So no doubt that will help because no other jurisdiction in Canada has that salary suppression. And then everybody is trying to bring more nurses on board to improve the workload so patients can get the care they need and deserve, and nurses are not frustrated by not being able to provide that care. And that's where the international, internationally educated nurses that the Premier spoke on that, we are on the same page. We have 26,000 that want to work in Ontario. 14,000 of those are RNs. RNs. But mm. if we don't improve the issue of the compensation, it will happen what's happening now, Tamara. They come to the system, those that get processed, which is not enough of them, but it's moving now, starting to move more because of the pressure. But then they go and leave to, to go to Alberta or to the U.S. They use us mm. as a bridge to get in and then get out. So we said also to uh, yesterday I met, for example, with Minister Calandra, I said we, and I said to Minister Jones the same. We need to have the nurses that we process and that we bring to the system to commit to at least two years here in Ontario. 
Dr. Green, Grinspun, we have to leave it there because we're coming up against the break. But thank you so much for your time. Dr. Grinspun is the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. A lot of alarming numbers coming out of this survey that was just released uh, regarding uh, nurses in Ontario. I want to hear your thoughts on these numbers uh, and some of Dr. Grinspun's thoughts. Give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. We're going to get to your calls in the next segment. 1-855-633-1010. As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now more with Evan Solomon. Now more with Tamara Cherry. In fact, I'm filling in for Evan this week. And next, I just spoke with Dr. Doris Grinspun, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. We were talking about, uh, well, the launching off pad anyway, was a new survey out of Ontario that shows that 70% of nurses in Ontario say that they cannot provide adequate care to patients. This is an Pretty stark contrast to comments that were made by Premier Doug Ford in Ontario yesterday saying that Ontarians are getting the care that they need. Well, uh, when I was speaking with Dr. Doris Grinspun just moments ago, she told me the current situation in Ontario hospitals is horrendous. How do you square What happens to the one that didn't because emergency rooms are right. closing? ICUs are either one close altogether and transfer eight patients. And this, of course, is a problem we've been talking about uh, all week, really, because emergency rooms are shutting down across the country, ICUs. Um, but, you know, uh, Dr. Greenspan says that there are certain issues that are uh, specific to Ontario. Meanwhile, Premier Doug Ford saying, uh, as I said, Ontarians still have access to the care they need. But what does Dr. Greenspan see? First of all, exhausted. They're exhausted. There is a, there is a a huge rate, 75% of uh, burnout in nursing, and it's because we had a pandemic, no doubt. Mm -hmm. They gave up the vacations, the days off, they gave up family time. I want to hear from you on this, one 855 Lots of text messages coming in at 71010. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, you don't need to live in Ontario. Uh, to, to comment on this, this is an issue that is facing uh, all that 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 all of Canadians are facing in our healthcare system right now. I would say that our healthcare system has been at a crisis point for several several years now, but certainly with the pandemic, uh, we seem to have reached a boiling point. Uh, Doctor Grinspun says that nurses in Ontario, particularly, are frustrated with Bill 124. This is provincial legis legislation that has capped wage increases for public sector workers to 1% a year. That's why they're leaving Ontario, Tamara. They are frustrated that their voice, including yesterday, when the Premier said he will not touch Bill 124, they are frustrated and they are going to Alberta, they are going to other jurisdictions in Canada, south of the border, they are going, and to agency here in Ontario, where they get a lot more compensation and a lot of more flexibility over their schedules. All right, let's head to the phone lines. And, and again, the number, if you'd like to share your thoughts, is 1-855-633-1010. Uh, Pierre, you're calling from Laval. What are your thoughts on this? 
Hi, first Amara, you're doing an awesome job. I hope you stay on uh, somewhere oh, thanks, uh, on this show. Like uh, you're a breath of fresh air. So thank you. Uh, let me. Just you're a breath a of things. fresh air, Pierre. You should see the text board that I read every day. Thank you. Continue. Oh my gosh. Now, what are, well, what are your thoughts on the nurses and the healthcare so, system? So, so a couple comments. First, this is not unique to Ontario. If you look at Quebec, two weeks ago, the Montreal Children's Hospital had to turn away patients. We had yep. another patient in another hospital die. It's the same thing all across Canada. We're seeing it in most of the United States and. UK and England, Germany, all around the world, they're having this, there's this epidemic of shortages of nurses and doctors and, and people being burnt out. But I just want to, I just want to say one thing here. We have to stop saying it's the pandemic. Okay, the pandemic, these nurses and doctors worked through the pandemic, they wanted to work, they worked overtime, they didn't complain, they, the society rallied behind them, and they were happy, they were posting pictures online. I know two nurses personally, and both of them loved working, and they said it wasn't as bad as the media set it out to be, even though it was bad in some times. What, what killed them, at least in Quebec, and that's probably what's happening everywhere else, is all these mandates that caused thousands of nurses to quit and be fired. In Quebec alone, the government said there were 16,000 medical professionals, including nurses, anesthesiologists, ambulance workers, drivers, uh, uh, paramedics, that many of them were fired, many of them left because they refused to take the, the COVID jab, whether you agree with it or not, the, the, the effectiveness of it, I'm not talking about that. I'm saying they refused to do it. A lot of them lost their jobs. We had a massive shortage. And then the government came back and said, oh, now you can all come back, even if you have COVID after four or five days, because it's such an in despair. So now trying to get back these people with 12, 13, 14, 15 years of experience People are still saying it's the pandemic. What does that mean, pandemic? It's not well, the pandemic. It's well, the, it's but the Pierre, that is, but that is also matter, the one pandemic. Final comment. Last week, two weeks, and two weeks in Ontario, six, not two, six, and one in Saskatchewan, doctors died suddenly. Nobody's talking about that. These are guys working eight hours, ten hours a day serving patients, and now you've got six of them, five from Ontario, all died suddenly, unexpectedly. Two of them were triathlon runners. So, so Pierre, I, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too far people. off topic. Thank you for your call, Pierre. I will point out that even if part of the the staffing problem has to do with nurses that lost their jobs because they didn't want to get the jab, um, even if that's part of the problem, that is the pandemic. But I would also say that I've talked to a lot of nurses um, who say that morale went through rent through the floor because of the plan- pandemic. You know, they were fearful for their safety. Uh, they were giving up their vacation. So I think that there is more to that. Uh, Eve, you're calling from Toronto. What are you? You're a nurse, I understand. What are your thoughts on this? Yes, I am. Um, my comment is, I believe they can, back in the day when I graduated nursing, we used to go into school, into the hospitals and actually assist the, the, the patients and, and do their care. But now a lot of this education is done on computerized dummies with computer systems. And I think that nursing is also a trade. So in, instead of a four-year university program, it should become a three-year program like it used to be back in the day. And within six weeks of starting school, we were out in the hospital taking care of patients, doing catheters, doing bed changes. And so all these clients are being taken care of, and the nurses can do other stuff. And I believe that they should also lower the percentage to get into uni. I mean, having 95 to get in, ridiculous. Not everybody's scholarly and educational and reading books, but Mm. they have the skills and the knowledge to do patient care, to learn the skills. And so, Eve, Eve sorry, did you did you start in as, as a registered nurse then after three years? Yes. And forgive me, I, I'm from Saskatchewan, so we might have a different system here, but has, has Ontario had RNs and LPNs in, as well? Yes, as an RPN, I guess equivalent to the LPN. We yeah. still have a one-year program, 
and RPMs were out working in one year. But they started their training in the hospitals, too. So they were taking care of, of, of patients in the hospitals, long-term right. care. And then if you're interested in acute care, you want to help out in acute care. So all these students could utilize in the hospitals instead of in, in an educational room with a dummy and computers making mock situations. Why not use them in the hospitals where we actually learn hands-on? All right. Great comments. Uh, thanks for your call, Eve. And, and thanks for your work as a nurse also. Artie, you're calling from Mississauga. Uh, how has this been impacting your, your life? Do we have Artie? We may, we may not have Artie. I'm going to go to the text board. Uh, we might have just lost Artie, but I understand that uh, uh, Artie had somebody in their life trying to get surgery and can't. That is something that certainly we have been hearing a lot about. Uh, it seems that we're at a point right now that if you really need help, you're most likely to get it. But the, the more minor cases... Uh, minor in the grand scheme of things aren't necessarily getting the attention that they deserve. And, and when we talk about these more minor cases, this sometimes means people living with chronic pain for months and months more, if not years more, because their surgeries have been delayed. It's absolutely, absolutely uh, uh, a problem in the country right now. And I think it's impacting a lot of people. Uh, going to the text board now, Lots of people weighing in, uh, you know, some people saying they understand that they want that nurses want pay increases. That's certainly something we're talking about in Ontario with that bill that has uh, that has taken away their their right to bargain for better pay increases. But one texter saying, I don't know of anyone who has received the increases they are suggesting. Don't forget, the taxpayers need to pay for these increases. Certainly other people on the text board saying that uh, if we are going to be talking about a pay increase for Ontario nurses, and I personally don't think that that will necessarily completely solve the problem, but if we're going to be talking about this, that money needs to come from somewhere. So what are we willing to cut? And that is a conversation uh, that needs to be had. But I, I think that obviously status quo is not working. We are at a crisis point right across the country, not just in Ontario. This is something that we need to be paying very close attention to and and not just, you know, get, giving the, the political talking points, which is what I think that we are really hearing in Ontario yesterday. Well, we're heading into the last segment of the show, and I'm really excited about this because I've got my buddy Dan Riskin waiting in the wings to talk science and technology. Dan, as a fellow Western Canadian person, one of my favorite people to talk to on the radio. Excited to be ending the show on that note. My name is Tamara Cherry, filling in for Evan Solomon's show. Stay tuned for Dan Riskin. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. And I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon. While we have made it to Thursday, that means it is time for the segment you've all been waiting for. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. Not just the segment you've all been waiting for, but the person you've all been waiting for, Dan. This thing been I've been waiting for, I love you. it. It makes me sound so cool when I hear that. I'm like, oh yeah, it's me. Woo, yeah. So anyway, it's <laughs> great to talk to you. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. And you are so cool, Dan. First of all, I mean, you're you're from Western Canada, so come on. Sure. Need I say more? Second of all, you're an author. Public. Your children's book isn't out yet, is it? 
It's coming out in September. Thank you. Yeah, Fiona the Fruit Bat comes out in September. I'm sure we'll find a chance to talk about that uh, as that approaches. But I've never written a kid's book before, and I'm super excited. It's available for pre-order in all the places. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm all nervous to see how it's responded to. It's about a little bat who's scared of the dark and scared to fly for the first time because she's worried she'll hit something. And she has to uncover a secret hidden inside herself in order to do that. And it's based on the real, uh, how echolocation develops in growing bats. And so it's, I was sort of imagining what it's like for bats before they do that first call and the whole world's dark and then they figure out how to echolocate and all of a sudden the world snaps into view. And so that's kind of what it's about. It's about doing scary things. So it's a kid's book. I love that. Dan Riskin, I love your enthusiasm about all things science and technology, but you have a special place in your heart for bats. And so I look forward to reading your children's book to my children. And speaking of children, uh, what we're talking about today is you know, something that it, it's interesting how our, how our views on kids and their attention spans and, and things like ADHD, that sort of thing has, has really changed as a, as a society since you and I were kids, I would say, yeah. but, uh, what kids lack in attention span, they often make up for in creativity. We're finding out what is this all about? Yeah, this is a, a neat publication. Basically like when you take kids and you measure their performance like their brain performance on things that adults do quite well on, they often come up short, right? And it's things like paying attention or concentrating, or here's a boring list, memorize it, or keep doing this repetitive task. Kids just don't do well at that stuff, which by the way, is a lot of how school certainly used to be. I think teachers have improved a ton since since certainly our day or my day, since I'm older than you or, or the sure. day, uh, whatever you want to call it, things are better now than they used to be. But we still keep going back to these like, you know, memorize your times tables, stuff like this, things yep. that seem like they're really important to do in a boring way, because that's just how you do it. So in this new study, they were looking at the workarounds that people find and the way that people pay attention to things they're not necessarily supposed to be paying attention to that help them get a shortcut, help them figure out a, a way to get things done more easily. And so the way they did this test is they had people kids in one group, grownups in another group. And the grownups were young adults, 20 to 35. So you're comparing like 10-year-olds to university age people. And basically the person sits at a keyboard with two buttons and a shape comes up on the screen. And if it's in a certain group of areas, they have to click one button. If it's another group of areas, they have to click another button. And they have to pay a little bit of attention about where the things appear, but it's boring and easy. It just takes a little bit of brain power. But there's this secret that the color of the shape tells you which button to push. So the blue ones, wherever they are, always end up being the left button and the red ones always end up being the right button. So once you sort of pay attention to that thing you weren't supposed to be paying attention to, you can find the shortcut that makes it super easy to do. And then you can just pound through it without even having to think. And, and it's this great shortcut. About 30% of adults figure this out. And when you look at the kids, they figure it out at about the same rate. So the kids have an adult-like ability to find those creative workarounds, to find those shortcuts, to have those aha moments about how to do this thing more easily, even though they don't do well on the boring task itself. And so it really speaks to the way the brain develops and what the strengths of kids are, uh, you know, which isn't necessarily what we're testing them on. So Dan, like when I'm, when we're getting the kids ready, we've got three kids. Uh, they're almost four, almost six and just turned eight. We're trying to get them out the door in the morning. And I'm saying to my oldest one, put your lunch bag in your bag, put your lunch bag in your bag, pay attention. I'm snapping my finger in front of it. Put your lunch uh -huh. bag in your bag. What new tools should I be employing on some of the mundane tasks? Do you think like, what is this research showing us in terms of how we can perhaps be communicating differently with our kids when we're trying to get them to do things that might not be that interesting for them? So they're looking at, you know, the, a board game or something instead. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, I think what it does is it does, it gives you better empathy of what that kid's going through. So mm-hmm. what, I'm, I'm going through the same thing, right? Like I've got a 10 year old, I've got two seven year old twins and same conversation, same time of day, come on. And, and like, you'll talk to them. And then after a while, they'll snap and look at you like, were you talking to me? And like, yeah. I've been in front of your face repeating <laughs> myself, but it's just not getting through. But what's, what's cool is that, is that like, especially my 10 year old, I'll be like, can you please put your bag in your, you know, put this in your bag, put this in your bag. And then he'll turn and he'll say, wouldn't it be great if I could build a robot so that when I push a button over here, it grabs the bag, moves it across the room, drops a chocolate bar in my lap. And then he like comes up with the most convoluted, creative, weird idea for how the job could potentially you know, he's not doing it. He's still just mm-hmm. talking, but he's living in this like creative world. And I think the important thing from this study is that's the world that develops for them before the very like, okay, it's routine. I got to do this. And then I got to do that. And I got to do this. That kind of stuff isn't where their strengths are. And that creativity and that paying attention to the stuff around them is where their brains have already gotten to. And the rest of the stuff still needs to catch up. What the researchers say in the paper and what they're, what they were hoping would happen is that they would find out that kids are super creative, that kids have this incredible incredible ability to find those kinds of shortcuts and they would outperform the adults on that task. They would, they would find that workaround more quickly because they're not paying attention to what they're supposed to be paying attention to. They're paying attention to all the other stuff, mm-hmm. but they didn't find that. They found that the kids just reached the adult level, which you could take as a sort of, oh, too bad for the kids. Or you could take it as a, hey, kids achieve this. And then we keep it as adults. We don't necessarily lose it when we get old and boring. So we can gain those other boring skills, but we don't necessarily lose that creativity as a result. I always find it fascinating to to see the different ways that our brains work. And I know you're talking about ways that our brains sort of work the same as our kids, but like my almost four-year-old, he know like the details that he notices and things that I don't notice, like on his Paw Patrol tower, like, oh, there's that thing. That I've, I've looked at this thing a million times. I've never seen that before, but he can right. describe it in such great detail. So it's, it is, I think, really interesting to be able to capitalize on this stuff. There's one other thing we've got like less than a couple of minutes left, Dan, but I really wanted to ask you about this. I mean, you always bring us the most interesting topics. Our world has set a new record for something that's, that is so minuscule and yet perhaps so, um, Big. I mean, it's, just tell us what the, the the Earth's rotation. We're talking like milliseconds here that it's changing. What's this all about? If if you can if you can grind it down in a minute for us. Yeah, ironically, we're running out of time, but it's because the <laughs> days are actually getting very fast. And so there's this thing happening right now where the Earth lately has been spinning more quickly than usual. So the Earth takes about 24 hours to spin, but actually you can measure it in milliseconds, and it's 86.4 million milliseconds. To, for a day, mm-hmm. but it, it varies a little bit. And that's because, you know, the ice masses move and the water moves and the air moves and planets around it move. And there's the friction from the, you know, the tides and all this stuff that make it shift. Now, usually it's getting slower and over the course of a century, we lose about a millisecond every day, but we're finding we just broke a record for the fastest day we've ever had. It was 1.59 milliseconds too short, and it happened on June 29th. And so, if this trend and continues, just like that, Dan, we're running out of time. We, out of we time. need more. There you go. We need this more milliseconds. It has been such a pleasure. Thing. It's great to have you back, Dan Risky. He's been off for the last month. He's graced us with his presence again, Dan. I hope to talk to you again when I am back in this chair next week. I am Tamara Chera. I've been filling in for Evan Solomon. Maybe there was something on the show today. Maybe even this very segment. Maybe. You missed the first few minutes and you'd like to tune into it well you can always get it on the evan solomon show podcast wherever you get your podcasts and of course lots more coming up for you across the iheart radio network keep on listening and i will be back next week thanks for listening have a great weekend everyone